Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. Nima Karimi, the founder and CEO of Lindella, is with us today. I'm honored. Nima, thank you so much for coming to the show. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Let's start by giving our listeners a little bit of your background for some context. Yeah, I'm uh, originally born in Iran, grew up in Sweden, moved to Sweden uh, because of the war, uh, and uh, spent 30 years there. Uh, oh, wow. Went to school there, obviously. Yeah, I mean, basically, I'm Swedish. Uh, I would say that. I have a Swedish passport and Swedish citizen. After school, I went to insurance, did nine years in one of the, the biggest insurance company in the Nordics, actually. So like classic corporate career to, to some degree. And then I went from there to a, a different kind of company working with the product that I'm actually now eventually launched here in Singapore. So I worked for two companies doing that uh, over the last five years in Sweden. Um, and this this industry in, in the Nordics, the, the, the model that I brought to Singapore is quite a mature industry in the Nordics. There's a lot of players doing this. Uh, these companies, they're no longer startups. They're they're acquired a long time ago. And and I really loved the, the business model. I, I loved what, what we were doing. And once I left the second one, I decided I, I want to do this on my own. And was looking, I had, uh, was looking with a couple of friends back then, where could we launch this kind of business? Uh, and uh, very opportunistically ended up in Singapore. I can do a longer version of that story, but let's say I ended up in Singapore eventually. I want to get to a couple of things, if you don't mind, because this kind of really resonates with me. I'm just curious how old you were when you left Iran for Sweden. You must have been really small, right? Five. Five. Okay. So I was 24 when I moved to Japan and I left when I was 46. So I have not lived in my home country for 30 something years. I know the age range is different, but I do think there's something really unique about being born somewhere, wherever it is, and then moving to another place. Like you actually said, kind of in passing, you know what? I'm actually Swedish. And I think to myself sometimes, I'm not Japanese, but I'm not really not Japanese in a way. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I I think I do, and and I think one thing is different is I said that I'm actually Swedish, but I feel very Iranian as well. My parents are obviously Iranian, uh, and I speak Farsi with them, so it is mixed. And I obviously don't look Swedish. I don't um, look Japanese, it, right? I know the feeling. yeah, you know, you don't. <laughs> not as far as I can see from from here, and it's tricky. I mean, you know, you kind of you're it's not, you're a little bit stateless. I was because you're if I go to Iran, I would not fit in whatsoever. Like I would be such a sore sore. Who is uh, that guy? Stop, kind of you know, thing? Like, yeah, I mean, I, I would. They would see from a mile away that I'm not actually Iranian. But in Sweden, I also don't um, yeah. fit in. Looks looks wise, at least. Uh, it's 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 a weird thing. And coming to Singapore, I, it was weird because if, I kind of felt like I started over again, like yeah. coming here and being an outsider, not understanding the culture, not understanding the unwritten rules, again, not fitting in uh, from uh, from a <laughs> looks wise. <laughs> so yeah, I feel like I just started over again. <laughs> I think there's something really interesting, though, about this confluence of me. I consider myself a third culture adult, right? Because, again, I was raised in one place, which I feel like is still there somewhere, but I grew up in another place, and that still has had impact on me. But you're right. I don't look like what I am at all, but I do feel like it's given me this idea of adaptability, but also the understanding that maybe everybody else in the world isn't exactly what they look like, and maybe every situation isn't exactly what it looks like. And I think it allows someone like you to see the world through a lens that most people don't understand. Yeah, I definitely think it helped me coming to Singapore, like having sure. having another reset and kind of understanding exactly like you said. Like there's a, I don't want to call myself humble, but there is some humbleness in that to know that okay, things are things are different yeah. in different places. You have to kind of read the rules and and be very uh, perceptive 
because that's kind of how you, how I survived in Sweden the first years. I had right. to be very perceptive, like look look how are other people doing it, my classmates or kids, and 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 you're you're constantly trying to like not stick out too much. You understand your culture is very different. So it does give you a, a certain skill set in terms of that, but it also gives you some negative skill. I don't know if it's it's a skill set, but like you, you become very adaptable. You try to always accommodate. Uh, you know, you you read the room. All those are great skill sets, but it, sometimes you also maybe you should just ignore all of that and just go right. <laughs> so there's a there's two sides to that. I mean, just like with everything else, you have to find that balance of I can adapt to any situation, and like you said, I can read the room. But sometimes you just have to ignore it and do the thing that you know is right. Yeah. Now the room needs to adapt to me, <laughs> kind of having to remember sometimes. Exactly. And I, and I think this is one of the real powerful things about being an entrepreneur. Before we get to Lendell itself, one of the things you said as well was, I really felt like I wanted to do this on my own. Was this always something, not Lendell itself, but was going out on your own always something you'd considered? Or was it something that you just felt like, you know what, I'm ready for this. I need to do this now kind of thing. Actually, uh, I, I was I actually misspoke. I would say because I I was terrified of doing it on my own. Uh, <laughs> if it wasn't, yeah, I mean, if it wasn't it's for my, my two friends, <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I, they really pulled me uh, out of my safe zone. Uh, I was working in this company, and 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 I, of course, I saw them benefiting from the products that I built, and so I could see that oh, th this is something I could have done on my own. I started seeing that opportunity, but it was thanks to my my friends that I actually took the leap. I was very, very, very unsure about myself being an entrepreneur. I was not exposed to entrepreneurship growing up. Entrepreneur was didn't exist as a term. That's some. I mean, until it was like self-employed, and that meant you couldn't get a job, so you were <laughs> self-employed. <laughs> you know, that's like that's. The, I'm, I'm old enough to kind of come from that. And then the last maybe ten years in Sweden, really, it's the startup uh, culture grew, and then you know now we have some amazing startups, of course, from Sweden. Yeah. I mean, some of the global, some of the most globally well-known companies were started in Sweden. I think Spotify is one of them, right? It's not even a startup exactly. anymore; it's just a massive company. But still, it started from scratch there. Before we get into again the details here, I want to get a sense from you and maybe from the peers with whom you were working about what the consumer lending landscape looked like to you as you started to have this idea of we're going to start Lendella. Like, what did it look like? Why did we need this thing? Uh, of course, I um, I came from a very developed market, a very digitally developed market, or just developed in every sense, regulatory and all that. Even in a market like in the Nordics, what we see and what we saw was when it comes to lending, and especially consumer lending, on the surface, there seems to be plenty of choice. There's usually a lot of options, lenders out there, hundreds of them. Have you ever, by the way, I'm going to ask you a personal question. Have you ever taken a loan? I have. Okay, so... How did you go about to do that? Like, uh, how did you go and find a, the option for you? So it's a really good question. I was living in Japan, but I'm not Japanese, right? So it was actually, and I was making a decent amount of money. Let's say a real decent amount of money. Yeah. So for me, the the financial side of it was really straightforward. I could cover whatever I wanted to do. So I bought a piece of land and I was building a house in Tokyo. And I just went to a couple of the banks that I knew. And back then, interest rates were close to zero, right? So I just thought this should be the best way to leverage money that I have to build a property and live in a nice house. But I couldn't get a loan on my own. I actually had to have my wife's father guarantee the loan for me because I was not Japanese. I didn't hold a permanent residence thing, and I was not a citizen of the country. So it was actually kind of tricky. The loan was mine. It was in my name, but it was for somebody else. And frankly, it wasn't, it wasn't easy to get. 
Yeah, and that, that's, I think those are common themes. Of course, you had a, it was a one level tougher for you being a foreigner, but not being easy and, and not a pleasant experience is a common theme, right? We don't describe that the process, the journey of getting your loan as a nice experience or pleasant experience. Most people don't don't connect that to a good experience. Like, it's not like going to an Apple store and right, buying a, a MacBook, be. you know. <laughs> and it should, it's a product, you're paying for it, right? You're paying the bank in interest. You're buying a product, but the experience is not described as pleasant, like something you want to do. Can I make a point here? Because I think you bring up something really interesting, and I hadn't thought about it in these terms before. When I go into an Apple shop, and I'm an Apple aficionado, so I'm so glad you said this. I used to ride my bicycle from my home to the store in Ginza on the weekends just for fun, even if I wasn't buying a product, just because it was cool and it was energetic, and I loved looking at all the products. And for sure, when they came out with new products... I was always down to going there. But imagine walking into that Apple store and having them just kind of look at you like, hmm, looks like he's going to shoplift something. Do you know what I mean? Like in just a way of like, why is he here? I always <laughs> felt that way when I was in the bank. They're like, okay, from the beginning, we don't trust you. And I'm like, I just want to buy something from you. Yeah, I have a job at Goldman Sachs. I just want to buy something from you. Why is this so hard? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, let's play with that comparison. And imagine then going to the Apple, imagine looking at the website and it says that MacBook costs $1,000. Right. Like, great, I can, I can afford that. You go into the store and they're like, no, 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 fill out this application first. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, then, and then you go through that. Okay, I'll fill out three pages and then submit some documents. I need your ID card. And then at the end of it, they say either, sorry, you can't get it and not really explain why, which is a rejection that most people, that you experienced as a, in the loan, or... No, you know what? It's not a thousand for you. It's two thousand, because that's how lending works, right? You yeah. have to go through a process of applying and filling out forms. You have to submit a few documents. Usually, you have to wait a while. It's not instant in most cases, and then at the end of it, you might even get rejected. And it's there's no explanation. If you don't get rejected, it's never going to be that price that you saw on the storefront. It's that's the weird thing about loans, right? Like you go to a bank's website. It said three point five percent, or two point eight percent, or five point six percent. And that's the advertised rate. You'd, your rate is only after you apply would you know your rate if you get approved. Your mileage may vary, as they used to say. Can I just continue this for one more moment? Yeah. When I go into the Apple shop, I have a credit card and I can get 0% financing for 10 months. So if I don't want to pay 90,000 baht, right, or 3,700 bucks or 3,500 bucks, whatever it is for my laptop up front, they'll actually let me pay $350 a month with no questions asked it's still super pleasant, like across the board. And you're right. The price that they say it is, is the price that they do, unless I add something onto it, right? I know the base price, but unless I add something onto it, they can't go, hmm, for Michael, it's $2,000, but for Nima, 25. Can't do it. Exactly, exactly. We would never accept that, but, but no. that's, that's how lending works. Uh, and you know, going back to your story about you getting a loan, I, I heard also, I picked up something that in the end, you, my, this is my guess. Is that you didn't. Once you got an approval, you were just okay. I got, I got approved, and this is what actually is the problem. Like there is hundreds of lenders out there. Yeah. They will all give you different offers. Some of them will reject you. Some of them will approve you. But once they approve you, they will give you different rates. But the problem is, it's so tedious to go through this process of applying and comparing that most customers, once they get that first offer, they're done. They're like, thank God, thank you, take give me the money, I'm out. And so we don't compare. And what happens is we overpay. We pay more than we should. Yeah. Can we make another point too? Not only not only that, but if I want to pay off my loan early, 
in most cases, at least back then, this is when I was borrowing, there was a fee associated with it. Like, I don't want your money that soon kind of thing. Wait, first of all, you didn't trust me when I got here. Now I'm trying to give you the money you don't want it. And if you do take it, I have to pay to give you my money early. Like, I understand the way, the way loans work. I traded bonds, right? So I understand, like, how duration works and all this stuff in relation to loans. But still, I just felt like it was so weird. I felt like the way banks treat, treat bars and lenders is just really insane in a way. Yeah. And that, that, that still occurs. I, I still see uh, those terms. And, and I, I think on the you know, business B2B side, it's fair play. You, know, you, can, you sign a contract as a business, fair play. But for consumer lending, I, th- I also think that's not fair. Like for consumer lending, you should have tighter regulations. You should, you should be able to pay back. It's in the benefit of the, the economy. <laughs> if the customer has the money, to, means to pay back, yeah. uh, they should be able to do so without any penalties. Uh, and it's uh, more and more lenders adopt that. More and more lenders offer early repayment, which is just a given for me that that should be the case. So one of the big changes that has happened, and I'm just going to pick a number, like in the last 10 years, is that all of us have way more access to way more information about everything, right? And you're right. If I was, because the, the bankers in Japan actually would come to your house, <laughs> right? And I couldn't just sit there and just like bang up other opportunities on the internet and say, like I could do when I go and buy a TV, which I did last month or two months ago in Fukuoka. The guy was like, okay, this Sony TV is 105,000 yen or whatever. I'm like, I can get it for 98, like right over there. So I'm here now. Can you just give it to me for that price? And he's like, okay, fine. But you, could, you couldn't do that before. So with all these changes and all, these informa- all this information dissemination, what has changed at scale? And then how does Landella disintermediate this and make it better for everybody? Once you realize that... The industry will stay the same. In, it, and, you know, we joke about, oh, you have to fill out an application before you get your offer and all that. We can joke about it, but that's basically how it has to be because every person has a different risk and the lender or the bank has to assess that risk before they can give you an offer. So that's not going to change. There needs to be a process of filling, submitting a certain amount of details about yourself before you can get your, your so-called loan offer. So what, what we do is say, okay, let's, let's, how do you work with that? So the Landela model works on a reverse auction model. So what we do is customers apply on our website uh, fill, out, fill out our application form. Very, it's very similar to a loan application, but much better UX, hopefully. Uh, at least I think so. But once they've done that, we have now enough information to run them through our, our matchmaking engine. So the purpose of our uh, that engine is to look at this profile that just came in and figure out who's the best lender or bank for this customer. And that profile will go through this matchmaking engine and then be sent to multiple lenders and banks that we believe that our engine believes is the best fit for this customer. And those lenders and banks now have to sub- return an offer back to Landela. Right. So now multiple lenders or banks or both are reviewing this application, your application, for example, actually anonymized. So they don't get to see your name or social security number, but they get to see your entire profile, everything they need to give an offer back. Got it. And they now have to return an offer to Landela. And of course, knowing full well, but that they're now being in a, they're in a reverse auction. So they need to put up their best offer for this, for you, for you to take that. And once the offers are returned, they're presented on Landela's website. And now you as a potential applicant you or a borrower, you review all these offers that have been pre-approved based on your profile. Once you make your choice, we take care of all that. If there's a document collection, if we need to book an appointment for you, if we need to do KYC, whatever we need to do, we we help you all the way until the point that you get the loan dispersed. So is there an opportunity for the bank? Because well, at some point, I'm going to have to walk into the bank and sign some papers, I'm presuming, right? They're going to see who I am and know who I am. 
at, at what point is that deal? We would say on the trading desk, right? Like if I give a price for a security, it's just if I say done, it's done. Like there's no later like, oh, well, I thought you meant this out of the other thing. You just are done by your word. So what is the context for that being done? And does anything change after that? Like what, what right do the banks then have to change or the, or the liquidity providers have to then change the terms of that agreement? Yeah, good question. Uh, the answer is it depends. <laughs> so we are, as you know, we're, we're in three markets. I didn't mention that earlier, by the way, but we're in Singapore, Hong Kong, and we just launched Australia. Each market has its own peculiarities and each lender has their own solutions. So we are very agnostic and we adopt to how the lenders work. So, for example, we have lenders in all three markets where the offer that is given is a final offer. So if the customer accepts it, it's just a matter of going through the signing process. And that signing process, to answer your question, could be online, it could be offline, depending on the lender. But then we have lenders that give in-principle approvals. So they give an offer, but it's based on the submitted details that we, that we send to them. So if it turns out later that those inf that information was incorrect or, or was lacking, it was missing information, they can revise the offer. Generally, we work towards what we call final offers. We want, we want customers, when they get an offer on Landela, to be very comf confident that this is the offer they're getting. There's so much data analytics that's going on here, right? On, on the Landela side, on the banking side. At what level are you sort of gathering all that data and then saying, you know what, we have 15 banks on the platform. These three banks almost never lend to the person with this type of profile. Do you know what I mean? So that we're going to now we're just going to send it to these other 12 institutions because why even bother these other people with it? Are you going to that level of granularity when you're doing this analysis as well? That's exactly how, how it works. But to add on that, those in your example, the three lenders that are not a good fit for that customer, that, that doesn't mean they're not a good fit for any customer. So that's where the matchmaking comes in. So, so yeah, and, and it's a waste of everyone's time. If, if I send this customer to those three, it's a waste of that lender's time to assess and give an offer. So the matchmaking helps on both ends. It makes the customer experience better and faster. Yep. But our lenders really appreciate the fact that once they get a so-called lead from us, it's a high quality lead and right. the ch chances of conversion is high thanks to that engine that we have. So how do they compensate you for that, right? Because getting that high quality lead is actually can be expensive at some level, right? Because they have to go out and find that person. And there is a little bit of, what's the right word? People can be intimidated if they're kind of at the border for like, I should probably be able to get this loan, but I might not be able to, so I'm super afraid to go into that fancy bank. Do you know what I mean? H how do you balance that out as well? Okay, so two questions there. Um, our lenders, and I'll share your business secrets here, but-, but I won't our, tell anybody. Our, uh, the, generally, our model, obviously, we don't charge anything on the consumer side. It's free of charge for the consumers, uh, the borrower. The, our lenders pay us generally what we call success-based commission. So they only pay us if a loan actually gets dispersed. So as you can imagine, and a lender can be on our platform for years, and if they, they can give offers to a variety of customers and not get a single loan paid out, they won't pay us a dime. Uh, obviously, that's not going to be a good experience for them. So, But in theory, that's the situation, a success. So we're very aligned with the lender in that sense. Unless they get the customer, we're not getting paid. The reason they, uh, and we, you said, you know, it could be expensive. I, I consider us quite cheap in that sense because compare us to their other options, which is advertising on Google or advertising on Facebook or doing a TV ad or whatever uh, that could be that gen might generate traffic, might generate applicants, might generate loans, disbursement. Yeah, compared to working with Lendella, knowing exactly what you pay and being able to calculate your ROI, that's something our partners really appreciate. From a UX experience and maybe a partner experience, 
how focused are you as a tech company, right, to make sure that the experience that the lenders have is as great as the experience that the borrowers have? Do you know what I mean? Because as an online platform, even if it's a mobile platform, right, you want that customer experience for your, the people that are borrowing money to be super smooth, super seamless, right, frictionless. They can do it while they're at dinner, like with their wives or husbands, like, honey, give me one second. I want to make that loan application. But on the bar, on the lending side, it should be just as easy. How do you, how do you fix that side as well? Like, is it a two-sided thing that you've built? For sure. And that's actually one of the things I love about, uh, love about the, the model and what we do, that we are in this position where we need to offer a win-win, otherwise no one wins. Yeah, uh, it's so a consumer has to be happy and the borrower, the lender has to be happy. And I mean, to be blunt about it, who is our customer? Our lenders are the ones paying. Yeah. Us. So and we call them our partners. I maybe use the word partner even during this interview. We consider it a partnership. It's a long term partnership. We're aligned with them, as you saw with the business model all the way. So unless we can get that customer all the way to, to the final step, we're, we're not actually going to get paid. So just it just from that point, we, we are very aligned. What we learned early on was we can come in and think of ourselves as a disruptor that we're going to come in and teach lenders how they're supposed to do things or teach banks yeah. how they're supposed to do things. Nah. But that doesn't work. No. no. And so we, we consider ourselves more of an enabler that we, we, when we meet a partner, we ask them how they work, how is their process currently, and we adapt to that. So it, you can see this across the board, even through how we build APIs, because we don't have a set template API. We ask the lender, what is your solution? And yeah. we're going to build an API that works with yours. And we've become very good at building APIs thanks to that. And that's just one example. Uh, another one is the, the interviews we do. When we onboard a lender, we sit down with them and go through their process. Exactly how they take a customer from giving an offer to doing KYC to doing the uh, the, the signing of the documents, what, what is it they need to collect? And then we, adu we adjust to that, we adapt to that. So that's, that's a, almost a philosophy that we have, that we will sit down and figure out how you do things and we're going to adapt to that. doesn't mean that we won't give them advice and say, hey, you know, we've been doing this quite a long and time and we have some other lenders, maybe you can streamline this, you can do this faster, sure. but it will only be to their benefit. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest misconceptions that a lot of startup founders have had in the past is that they're going to go in and disrupt an industry that has, you know, a trillion dollar balance sheet just because they have, um, you know, just because they can program in PHP. I'm exaggerating to make a point, but I think you understand, right? Like Ruby on Rails is not going to take down HSBC for sure. Yeah, I think the fintech industry has understood that now, right? Yeah, like that, finally. That, that idea of disrupting banks is gone. Now everyone's working with <laughs> banks. Well, yeah, uh, because if you've ever worked inside a bank before, look, when I was sitting on the trading desk, we outsourced almost all of our trading technology because there were other people building it externally. And it just didn't make sense to de dedicate all these resources. Plus, they had all the modern technology that was hard internally to manage people that had been you know, programming in C or on a mainframe and then have them, you know, do, I can't remember, .NET, which they just didn't know. Do you know what I mean? Like, you couldn't square those circles. So I completely understand. The bank looks at a startup and goes, those, ga those gals can help us. And if startups are smart, they say, we can help them. We don't want to disrupt them. So many things to ask about. You get all this data, right? Is there any way that you can use some of that data to then create new and, like, innovative products that maybe the banks hadn't considered or that even that the borrowers hadn't thought that they needed, if that makes sense? I can share that we see a, a huge demand for uh, helping a lot of customers manage their debt. That there's a, there's a there's not really solutions out there for for customers that have debt, and a lot of customers have debt. You know, it's, it's uh, whether it's credit cards or or personal loans or something else, and and they and they have a I would say like 
it's they, they, there's not an easy way to get an overview over your debt if you're if it's spread across multiple lenders yeah. and banks and also understand what are the different interest rates where am i overpaying is there if i transfer that loan to a different lender would that make a difference that's an area that we we believe we can add a lot of value and we already are that's so interesting look once i i always feel like once a company like yours gets to become part of this sort of transactional business, right? Where people are moving money from one place to another place, whether it's borrowing or lending or, or even um, like credit cards. I feel like once you get the trust of your customers, and I mean both sides, yeah, your partners on, on the lending side, but also your customers on the borrowing side, once they trust you, you should be able to sell them other financial products besides just loans. Yeah, like do you consider doing credit card stuff. I mean, you just talked about now about this product where you, you, you look at, um, you know, debt management, which I think is really important for people. I don't think most people understand, like you said, like where their debt actually puts them and where the risks are, right? But also you come out of an insurance background. You have, if you're doing, I don't know how many transactions a year or you're seeing all these transactions every month, you also have the opportunity to sell other financial products. Is this something that you're considering as well, particularly where the biggest buzzword today is not just embedded finance, but embedded insurance, right? What does that look like to you? Uh, short answer, of course. You know, it's it's on on our agenda. It's it's on our roadmap. Longer answer is, and I, I think you know we have a position as an intermediary, an independent party in this in a very complex uh, transaction and in a very opaque industry, right? Like from a consumer point of view, also. I look at it from that point of view. What what other areas can we help as an intermediary, adding transparency to an opaque industry? So when you so, I don't always look at it like okay, what other products could we add um, as a upsell or a cross sell or something like that. It's not what what other problems are similar. And and the the truth is the lending industry is so huge and there's so many lending products that have the same problem, whether it's SME loans or car loans or mortgage. So we have. We have more than enough. Yeah, it's not small, for sure. Yeah. You know, we, we talk a lot about the tech and the product. And I, I, I've i been doing that for five years. It's a tech startup. I'm, I, I'm supposed to talk about the tech. But but over the last years, what, what I've noticed is what we actually are doing, which, which I am very proud of, is we're helping customers in a very um, lonely experience. Yeah. So, so the borrowing experience is quite a uh, stigmatized experience not uh, okay let me take a step back like mortgage not a big deal we talk about our mortgage we share with friends what do you pay what do i pay like that's that's a premium product but who talks about like a personal loan or how much credit card debt they have that's there's a lot of stigma around that and and some markets more than others some of the markets we're in and a lot more than others so it becomes a very lonely experience and we see this we see this hands-on we see husbands applying not telling their wives we see you know kids applying living at home not telling their parents this is something that I started noticing early on that, that there's this huge um, demand for just someone to help you, just listen to you and give you advice. And uh, and that's honestly, uh, tech, we're a tech startup and all that, but that's probably the biggest value add we're offering right now. Yeah. The fact that we're, we're the only company that you can go to and talk to and, and because we actually have a back office team that can pick up the phone if you right. call and help you through this very lonely experience. Can I make the case that you don't care for a second if your clients, meaning your borrowers, think that your tech is like the best tech ever? All you really care about is if you've solved a problem for them. And I think this, again, is one of the disconnects. It's like, 
I need to have the, I'm a tech startup. I'm going to have VC funding. I need to be really fancy with my technology when in reality, all you really want to do is provide help to somebody. And if the tech facilitates that, great. If they don't need it, not necessary. And I think this is the point you're trying to make. And I think, and I almost never quote Steve Jobs, but I think he was like, if the tech is really great, it just feels like magic to the people that are using it. And as long as you're giving them the magic, they kind of don't care how they get it. No? Yeah. No, no, you're, you're right. And to add another layer to compare to an Apple product is no one really cares about our product. I'll, I'll tell you, I, I, I have this fortunate situation. I come from insurance and lending. No one cares about your product. No one cares about insurance. No one cares about what they want is what the product gives you. Yeah. You don't you don't care about a travel insurance. You want the trip. Right. You don't care about the loan. You want the car. <laughs> right. You know, like so. Knowing that it's a humble it's a humble position to be in an industry. Uh, and I've been in both. Uh, I think the only two probably that are no one. No one. It's not. I'm not working for a BMW or Apple. It's like no one cares. They just they just want to get through this process as fast as possible so they can get to the next step, which is that thing they want to buy or the investment they need to do. Or the you know whatever it might be. Yeah, it was the, the same in insurance for nine years. Like uh, no one wants the home insurance; they just want to buy the home. <laughs> right, right. They need and, it actually. Start living I mean, life. So one of the things that we wanted to talk about was venture capital funding. Can you talk? Because you've raised money, but not in a while. Yeah. Can you just run through that experience? What you think about it? You're smiling at me, but I'm really curious about this. Oh, um, what do you want to know? <laughs> I don't know. What advice would you give to founders? <laughs> so, yes, I have raised money. I have raised money from VCs, and I'm actually closing around now. So, the, 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 hopefully, it, uh, it will, will all, it'll be Good all stuff. done soon. Uh, so, so, yes, I have taken the VC route. When I started, I had no idea what that meant. I didn't understand what VC route meant when I say that, and, and, what, and maybe I still don't know fully. But one thing that comes to mind when you say that is, like VC funding isn't for everyone. That's obvious. The, the first thing that comes to mind is, sure. and not every startup is a VC type startup. And and you know what I mean with that is, because you might think like, oh, okay, so I'm not going to get a, I know VC is going to invest in me. That's not what I mean. It could be actually a, the biggest mistake of your life if a VC does invest in you. Right. Uh, that's what I'm referring to. Like some companies need to just grow at a certain pace, and yeah. you can't push that growth. And and VC funding requires rapid growth and and there's a certain expectation that comes with VC funding and how funds are set up and what they expect in returns. And there needs to be a second round and a third round and an exit. You're tying yourself up to a certain trajectory when you get VC funding. And I think, you know, there's this um, romantic around uh, romantic image about uh, getting, uh, you know, becoming a startup founder and being an yeah. entrepreneur. And that, I, th- I think there's, there should be more training there. Uh, <laughs> like, what, what does it mean? It's like before you jump into it uh, to understand what you're, you know, jumping into uh, and why you're doing it that's one thing that definitely comes to mind and of course there's more to unpack there um one thing i learned uh, you know seeing now and i think we're all learning that and seeing it it's like high valuations like being overvalued is not always good for you like not always it's to... never good for you it's <laughs> yeah. never good for you i'll make the case Eventually, it's never good you know, for you uh, yeah i have two Eventually, words for you have to pay. i have two words for you we work i know it's only one word but you know what i mean yeah <laughs> no exactly uh, and 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 Something I'm learning on the and and I'm not overvalued, so thank God. I I, I, <laughs> I don't know if that sounds good or bad, but uh, I think like we've we've had That's a good. I've been lucky that uh, it's been a fair valuation every round. I I now learn about things about liquidation preferences and anti dilution and all yeah. that. And now I'm so after five years, I'm like, oh okay, like this could end up being that everyone has an exit except me. You know, this could end up with like everyone having a good a good return in the end except the founder. Yeah, I mean, look, I've said to I've said to so many founders, I've seen so many deal sheets where investors at of all classes, right, tried to 
just kind of write stuff into it. Liquidity preferences is one of the best things, but there's so many examples of this. And the founder's like, should I do this? I need this 2 million bucks. And I'm like, no, you can't do that. Because at the end of the day, you'll never be able to raise the next round or the following round because you won't have enough equity. And then your next level of investors won't believe that you'll actually even stay around. There's so many intricacies for this, right? But you're right. Yeah. I was going to say, the, the VC's modus operandi, right, is to invest at the stage where they feel the most comfortable and then to help that company grow as fast as possible to get to the next round so then they can make some money at the next round as well. Mm -hmm. To bring in, they have a funnel of people that deal with them and they want to give the, their best investments to the next round of people so that they can fund the growth and they can fund the accelerated growth. And if you're not ready for that type of experience, you should not, you, but one should not take that money because it accelerates stuff in a way that pe most people have not experienced before, no? Yeah. And I think what's happened the last two years uh, is really good for the industry, Same. for the start, the, the sobering and uh, look going back to fundamentals. Like, you know, we, for a period, I think everyone forgot that the purpose of a legal entity or a company is to <laughs> deliver value to shareholders and that the value is in term in profits and dividends. Like, like we kind of just forgot all of that for a while. And, and I think it's coming back <laughs> and, and, and I think it's really good. And, and I look, I say that knowing we've, a lot of us have gone through a lot of pain, including me because of that, yeah. it's very hard to fundraise, having to justify, you know, valuation and all that yeah i think it's actually the best thing that's happened the, the last two years for us uh, and and yeah sobering is the word that comes to mind but i mean you also said it's painful and it can be super painful you know if you look at what's taken place just in the biggest companies that we know in this region i mean look at what happened to the grab spac people just got carried out on a stretcher right the whole yeah. funding mechanism for some of these companies is just really hard to deal with and unless you know the ins and outs of it it's a, it's a difficult environment. So one last thing that I'll ask you before I let you go. This has been a great conversation, by the way, and I really appreciate it. But now that you've been in Singapore for how long, you said? Five years. Boy, it goes by really fast, doesn't it? It does. It really does. But now, can you just give me like an overall assessment of the growth of not just Singapore itself, but just sort of the fundamental Southeast Asian startup market, just from your perspective? Because... You're in the fintech space, which means money's connected to everything else that happens. I know it's a consumer thing as well, but you've also raised some money too. So you're deeply involved in this. What's your view on how it's changed and where you think it's going? I think from, from a startup point of view, are we talking? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, just to put it like in frame it in the right context here, keep in mind we're a startup that actively chooses developed markets, Singapore, Hong Kong, Australia. Which is sometimes also going back to the VC discussion that it's not to our benefit. A lot of VCs they literally have a mandate to invest in non-developing markets. <laughs> like, yeah, I didn't make it easier for myself by choosing uh, these markets. <laughs> um, but that's where my my answer will come from. That's my where my knowledge is, of course. I, I do. I, I'm a little bit worried about the startup ecosystem. I think I saw three Singapore's obviously pre-COVID, during COVID, after COVID, and um, from a pre-COVID, I mean, it was all about fintech, all about high growth startups, uh, very big funding rounds. Uh, everything was on fire in, the, in a good sense <laughs> and, and uh, hot. And now we see almost the opposite, of course. What, but what I actually worry about is what you talked about, about Grab and the SPAC. So uh, we were all waiting for these these IPOs, right? Yes, and yeah. and this was going to release money into this into the ecosystem. You know, we we're like the and this is like the Silicon Valley flywheel. It's gonna you know bring in new entrepreneurs and money into to fund new entrepreneurs, and that's not obviously been good. That the, the, it didn't become a success story. Like the, the joke I said, like. 
you know, your friends went to work for a bank, you went to a startup and your friends are like, what's wrong with you? And then the whole point was the startup was supposed to go really well. You're going to come out a millionaire and then your friend's like, oh, I chose the wrong right. career. Right. But now it's like, oh, no, actually, they chose the right career. <laughs> they still have their job at the bank. Um, so I was really hoping for that. And, and so that uh, worries me a little bit that we didn't get these success stories. And then it, of course, worries me that it is there's we don't see any light at the end of the tunnel right now. There's yeah. no... I mean, we had a couple of IPOs a few weeks ago in the US, but not amazing. Uh, and we need to get some liquidity in the market. We need to see some success stories for that to f- trickle down to us small startups like Landella that were, you know, so, so we can grow and come to that level. Maybe I hope I could share something more positive, optimistic, but I'm wondering like how, where is that going to come? Where is that light and end of the kind of going to come? What yeah, do you think? I think about this a lot too. And I'll leave you with this thought. I really want to see companies go public here. Right? If you really want to make a difference, you shouldn't move to Silicon Valley and then list on the NASDAQ. Right? Because if you really want, like you said, if you want that thing to happen that people were talking about 10 or 11 years ago where we'll build these companies and then we'll list them here, we'll exit here, big corporates will buy them here and that will unlock a bunch of other capital because they'll see the success stories and then they'll manifest other success stories and that has not happened. So even when some of the biggest companies that were built out here went and did their IPOs, and I'll put that in quotes, in the United States, it was just like, really? You're supposed to be building something here. Anyway, it's neither positive nor negative to me per se, but it's a bit of a cop-out, I thought. Just that's my opinion. I'm not putting words in your mouth. I'm just saying that that's my opinion. Anyway. And I look, I mean, my optimistic side is also what I mentioned earlier. Yeah. It's also good with this sobering. It's good that we can yeah. s- slow down is not the right word when you're running a startup, but you can just, you know, focus on the fundamentals and big build something good. And how do we make it long term? How do we make it profitable? Those are the questions that like the last couple of years have, you know, surrounded me. And that's been very good. And I think that's happening for a lot of startups you're, you're not really chasing that fake back <laughs> and you're actually building something because you want to there's a difference between being in a hurry and having a sense of urgency and i think before people were in a hurry and now i just want people to have a sense of urgency anyway i'll leave you with that nima karimi the founder and ceo of Landella. that was awesome you have to come back i really appreciate your time today we would love to. thank you for inviting me